The great thing about being famous is it's a new religion. Jesus is not the big name anymore. The big names are Brad and Angelina. That's just the way it is. If we walk Jesus, Brad Pitt, and George Clooney down Fifth Avenue, I think Clooney and Pitt would get a lot more attention. Steve Gutenberg said that. He, uh, he was the actor from the old Police Academy movies, if you remember years ago. If you measure greatness by cameras, appearances on late night TV, um, maybe even Oscar nominations, maybe Gutenberg is right. Maybe Jesus isn't really a big deal anymore. Or maybe Jesus is more than relevant, transcending even celebrity. Our culture celebrates fame, but the universe celebrates Jesus Christ. Years ago, God gave hope to humanity. To the serpent, he said this in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians call that verse the proto-evangelium or the first gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ are God's boot on the head of Satan. The son won. He won. He is victorious. We broke the covenant of works, but God made another covenant called the covenant of grace, that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, the sinner can be restored and rescued. God, man, Jesus, response. That's the outline of the sermon series, and we've covered a lot of ground already. We've examined the character of God, the origin, and the fall of man, and today the person and work of Jesus Christ. So before we get at that all-important work, uh, let's pray. Father, I pray that you will send your Holy Spirit to move today in this congregation to lead us to the truth of Jesus Christ. This is a revolutionary message. This changes people, and I pray that it has that effect upon us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to build a case for you this morning that leads up to the apex of Jesus as the only solution for our sinful condition. How he is paradise. And so we begin. Jesus is. Jesus is. Does Jesus exist? Well, much compelling historical evidence says yes, he does indeed exist. Even some atheists agree that Jesus existed. Secular historical Sources mention Jesus including first century historians Josephus and Tacitus along with Pliny the Younger, a first century Roman lawyer and author. The hottest debate, more than the existence of Jesus, is probably the identity of Jesus. Who is Jesus? That is the question. And we find the most honest and trustworthy answer in God's word. What does God have to say about Jesus. First, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And did Jesus ever claim to be God? Well, some say yes, some say no. 
what does the Bible say? Well, it's helpful to travel back many years to Moses and the burning bush, where God identifies himself like this in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. When God said, I am, he was identifying himself. God is, I am. Now, advance ahead to John 8, 53, where some Jews asked Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? That's a great question. Who did Jesus Christ say that he was? Verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus is not winning brownie points here. He, he's, he, he's not uh, amusing to these Jews. He's flat out offensive. They don't like what he's saying. He's going right at them, just like Jesus did. And he continues, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. And was glad. Do you understand what he's saying? Do you understand when Abraham lived? Way back? Abraham anticipated the coming of the Messiah. He anticipated the coming of Jesus Christ. The chosen one. And in God's covenant of grace, he saw Jesus. The Jews asked Jesus in 57 because this didn't make sense. So in verse 57, he said, they said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Now his answer is absolutely awesome. I mean, if you read Jesus and just let him speak, how he interacted with people was unbelievable. This is what he says to them. Verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Isn't that amazing? I am. Do you know what he's saying to these Jews? I am almighty God. I am the beginning and the end. I have always existed. I am God. It's unmistakable, right? Watch how they respond in verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Apparently, they disagreed with where he was coming from. Jews tried to kill Jesus in John 5, too, mostly because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. They wanted to kill him in John 10, 30, after he said, I and the Father are one. And they admitted why they wanted to kill him in verse 33, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus claimed divinity by receiving worship. In John 20, 28 and 29, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus responded, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus claimed divinity by forgiving sin. Jesus told the paralytic in Mark 2, 5, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes thought to themselves, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Jesus, knowing their thoughts, heals the paralytic who picks up his bed and he walks home totally healed. Jesus is God. One of his best friends, John, wrote of him, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even God the Father confirms the divinity of Jesus. Hebrews 1, 7 and 8 says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus is also the Son of God. God proudly says at the baptism of Jesus, a wonderful moment of history, he says this, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Then at the transfiguration of Jesus in Luke 9, 35, God says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. His disciples said, truly you are the son of God. Jesus is God, he's the son of God, and he's the eternal creator. Jesus said of himself in Revelation twenty two thirteen, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. John 1, 1 through 3 affirms that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 tell us Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Even Hebrews 1-2 says God created the world through Jesus. Now, as a kid growing up, it, it never dawned on me that Jesus was involved with creation, that he was there in the beginning creating the world. It took me years for that truth to sink in. Now, I'm sure it's not done sinking in because he's limitless, but he was there in the beginning creating. God was creating through him. Well, Jesus says he is God. God says he is God. His friends say he is God. Creation says he is God. It's indisputable. What do you say? Who is Jesus this morning? Years before his birth, even prophecy said he was the anointed one. Jesus is the appointed Messiah of Isaiah 53. Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would come, a man of sorrows to bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, to be wounded and crushed for our sin, bruised for our healing. Sin would be laid on him. He would be chastised in our place. Shia LaBeouf, you might know that name. He's a famous actor. He was in the Transformers movies, uh, among other movies. In an interview with Parade Magazine, LaBeouf was remarkably transparent. He said, I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it and I'd be on my way. I really admire his transparency. He's being real. Um, he admits his insecurity. He admits that there is a God-sized hole inside of his heart, and he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know how to fill it. He doesn't know what to do. What's big enough to fill a God-sized hole? And if Jesus is simply a hippie in sandals that was nice to people, he can't fill a God-sized hole in your heart. 
A God-sized hole exists in all of us because we broke fellowship with God. The hole exists because relationship with God used to fill the hole. We need God to fill our emptiness. Trusting in anything else is like trying to fill the Grand Canyon with a baseball. It's just, it's not even close. The gospel says Jesus is God and is the only one capable of filling a God-sized hole in your heart. Well, there's more. Jesus came. Now, why is Christmas so important? God requires every person to live a sinless life. Remember the covenant of works? Obey me perfectly and you will live, disobey, and die. We broke God's covenant and there is no hope for us. None. We have no hope. Unless someone like us is perfect for us. Think about that. If you've accumulated $100 million in debt, big debt, and you have no money, the only way out of that debt is for someone else to pay your debt off. Can Jesus really pay off your sin debt that you have accumulated? He can if he is a man who lives a perfect life under the law and then presents his obedience to God as payment for you. You have a need and God has a need. You have a debt that you can't pay and God's justice, his righteousness, his holiness must be satisfied. Who's going to pay? Paul wrote in Galatians 4.4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. You remember what happened? Luke 1 describes how the virtuous and, uh, and innocent Virgin Mary becomes supernaturally with child and is told her son will be Jesus, the son of the Most High, and will inherit the throne and reign forever? I don't know about you. That's, that's big news. That is big news. You can see why Mary questioned how this could have come about. The supernatural conception and birth of Jesus meant he did not inherit the sinful nature of Adam. He was called Jesus, Hebrew for Joshua or Yeshua or Yahweh saves. Because God had come in the flesh under the law in order to save his people from their sins in part by obeying the law perfectly, by doing exactly what God said he was able to to do it all. John wrote, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God lived with us in the flesh. Here, as the God-man who perfectly fulfilled the covenant of works. If you remember back to the Old Testament, do you remember the sacrifice and the system that you had? The the sacrifice that they brought from the flock must be male without blemish, perfect, spotless. Nothing else would be accepted. It had to be the best. If Jesus is to satisfy the righteousness of God with his life, he needs to be morally spotless. He needs to have a perfect record. Hebrews 4, 
15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Though fiercely tempted, Jesus remained spotless. No moral corruption. He was perfect, sinless, without sin. Jesus is described in Hebrews as holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. This is no ordinary man. Now, sometime you're going to be able to meet my brother Chris. All right, I love my brother Chris. We have a really tight relationship. We do a lot of things together. And, um, and if you ask him, is Jonathan perfect? He's going to very clearly be able to tell you from a rich history of events, no, no, Jonathan is not perfect. Now, why is he able to say that? Because he's my brother. He knows me. We've, we've lived together. James and Jude were half-brothers of Jesus. They were reasonable men. They knew Jesus really, really well. Both men considered Jesus to be their perfect Lord and Savior. Even Mary did. Even his best friends considered him sinless. Peter said he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Paul knew it too. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now do you find that message good news? Does that hit you as a breath of fresh air that there is someone out there who lived the law perfectly, that was spotless, that became sin so that all those who know him might become the righteousness of God. He was made perfect under the law. No guilt, no mistakes, no sin. But he became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you ask the question, how do sinners become the righteousness of God? How does that work? By having the righteous record of Jesus counted as theirs given to them, uh, credited to their account. That's how. But that's not enough. Uh, If you eat dinner at the Brick House Cafe, Christine and I have yet to eat there, but if you eat there and you get up after your meal and walk out, that's not welcomed. Someone has to pay for the meal that you've just eaten. God's infinite justice must be satisfied or paid. He said, you will surely die. So someone has to die in order for justice to be done. The bill must be paid. Jesus is, Jesus came, and Jesus died. Jesus can't eat the meal for you with perfect manners. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's he's eating the meal for you, living life with perfect manners. He did it Well, that's not good enough. The bill has to be paid. And remember I said last week that God's infinite holiness was offended and that the sentence was infinite and appropriate to his holiness. So the bill that needs to be paid is infinitely expensive. Do you understand now why your good works presented to pay off that bill is laughable? It just doesn't work. You can't live a good life and pay God back. It's not good enough. You're not worth that much. K. 
Can you see why your earthly success is pittance compared with debt? You can't take your money with you. You can't pay it off. It's just too expensive. When I was new at North Park Church, I invited this family to go to Rita's Italian Ice. I love Rita's Italian Ice. We got to know these people very well over the years. But um, I invited them to come to Rita's Italian Ice with me. And when we got there and we're, we're getting out of the car, I'm realizing I don't have my wallet. I have no way of paying for Rita's Italian ice, and I invited them. So I ended up telling him, uh, do, do you mind footing the bill for this? And he gladly did. And I'm really glad that he was able to pay when I couldn't. God's infinite justice must be satisfied by something that is equally infinite. Remember, it's a God-sized hole. Only the expensive blood of Jesus can satisfy the immeasurable holiness of God. John 19, 16 through 18 tells us the story. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. Christ was so costly that he could cover the debt of millions of sinners. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. What price? Jesus, the Son of God. He was the currency that bought you back from the slave market of sin. So how then does God legally clear your record? He can't just overlook it. He can't just look past this tragedy. Colossians 2.14 tells us God cancels the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, referring to our, the record of debt, he set aside nailing it to the cross. Notice God didn't overlook it. God didn't turn away or ignore this immense debt. He paid it by nailing his son to the cross as the debt. No cheap silver, no cheap gold is worth enough to cover that. Not enough to cover and pay for what we've done. Only the precious blood of Jesus Christ can do that. This is the message, I believe, that will transform Mannheim, that will transform Lidditz, that will transform Lancaster County and the United States of America and the world. The best news you could hear is that Jesus died in your place and paid off your debt of sin you owed to God. It's vicarious redemption or substitutionary atonement. Vicarious simply means died in your place. Redemption means he paid your debt with his blood and bought you. Have you heard of Christopher Hitchens? Not sure if you know that name. He was a brilliant British-American author and prolific journalist, quite winsome, very, very intelligent, and a vowed atheist until his death in 2011. In a debate, he was asked this question, what specific teachings of Jesus do you believe to be evil or poisonous? He answered, the concept of vicarious redemption is the most repulsive, I think, and the most central. 
Hitchens defines vicarious redemption as the idea, quote, that by throwing your sins onto somebody else, onto a scapegoat, you can have them annealed, abolished. Hitchens said, that is a disgusting and immoral doctrine. The moral rot of Christianity is, I think, exposed in its central doctrine of vicarious forgiveness. It's an abdication of moral responsibility, end of quote. Hitchens finds the gospel morally reprehensible. The key to the Christian faith is Jesus Christ taking our place, dying in our place on the cross, and thus paying off the sin debt we have accrued yet can't pay. That is our joy. That is our life. That is our gospel. That is our good news. That's everything to us. That is the message, and that is the power of the church. For Hitchens, the word of the cross is folly, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Salvation is by this truth. But Jesus had to do more than die. Jesus rose. You know, if Jesus is dead, we are still in our sins. Paul tells us that, and and therefore we have no hope. None whatsoever. The resurrection of Jesus is critical to our freedom. Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 5, 20 through 23, that in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that would be Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, and that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you will raise to eternal joy. The gospel joyfully says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not a hoax, it's history. He is alive. He is no longer in the grave. Death does not hold him any longer. He conquered the grave. And over 500 witnesses were there to see his resurrected body. And they pass it down through written account in the scripture. It's history. If you get a chance, you need to get the book Unbroken. It's by Laura Hillenbrand. She did uh, Seabiscuit which was made into a feature film. Unbroken, it's an amazing World War II story of Louis Zamperini. He was a prisoner of war. You know, for prisoners of war, what oftentimes keeps them going amidst the greatest adversity is the hope of victory and rescue. Victory and rescue. Have you heard? The war is already won. Jesus Christ won. He's a winner. Christ rescues anyone who turns from the prison camp of sin and runs to victory and freedom in him. But there's more. Jesus ascended. 
He ascended. Jesus went back to his dad and sent his Holy Spirit to live in us here. Here's how it all went down, Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is still alive. And though he's not here, he's coming back here. This is how I've explained it to my kids. See if you can track with this, all right? Right now, we can't see Uncle Chris. But we know Uncle Chris exists. I've had a relationship with Uncle Chris. I could call Chris on the phone right now and talk to him in person. But I can't see him. He's not here right in front of us. He's there. But if I was to travel and go there, I would be able to sit with Chris. I'd be able to hug Uncle Chris. I'd be able to talk to Uncle Chris. We could go fly fishing. We could play basketball. We could eat together. Whatever. He's not here. He's there. But just because he's there and I can't physically see him with my eyes doesn't mean that he's not in the flesh and real and alive. Sometimes we forget how simple it all is. Jesus is alive. Still breathing. Heart still beating. We could talk to him face to face. We could get together. We could, you know, eat together, laugh together. But we're not physically together. He's not here now, but he will be soon. Jesus is coming. How do POWs feel when rescue planes fly overhead uh, how do young people feel right before the first date or uh or the groom right before the bride comes down the aisle how do little kids feel um as they scream for joy and yell out for joy when they hear the music of that familiar ice cream truck why well they all feel joy because they know what's coming they know what's coming. True Christians are the most joyful people in the world because even in the face of adversity, they know what glory is coming. Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. You know, the disciples probably, this didn't make sense when Jesus was going back. They probably were thinking, man, I want to be nowhere else than with you. Why do you have to leave us? And he gave them a promise that he was coming back. I'm not going to be away forever. I'll come back and I'll get you. And then we'll be together again, face to face, in the flesh. This is going to work out. I've got a plan. I'm, I'm bringing it together. The splendor of heaven is unquestionably the presence of God and Jesus Christ. God is paradise. Where Christ is, perfect joy is. Where Christ dwells, pleasures forevermore dwell. Jesus is the gospel. And just an appeal to you, if you meet people, sometimes from other countries, who are just content with nothing. I mean, they don't have anything. And you're wondering, how are you so happy and you'll find out that deep down they have this, this peace and this, uh, 
this calm and this joy and this delight in Christ. It's the only way that you can explain it. I've heard stories of horrible things happening to Christian people. And you know what? They still keep moving ahead with joy. They're not wrecked. They're not destroyed. They get back up and they smile and they go, it's not zippity doo dah, but it's this deep-seated joy that is found in Christ alone. And people who don't know Christ just don't get it. They think worldly pleasures are enough, but worldly pleasures can't get you through the difficult things that life tosses your way. Jesus can. He fills the God-sized hole. He is the splendor of heaven. Do you know that only Jesus saves? We've seen it on t-shirts, hats, bumper stickers, you know, coffee mugs, uh, pictures. But friends, it's the truth. Jesus saves Paradise was more than the garden. It was primarily joyful fellowship with God. And by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, paradise is restored. Revelation 21 puts it straight, right out there for us. Some great things to think about. This is from Jesus Christ. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But my friends, that does not have to be for you. The other verses explain paradise restored by Christ. Paradise restored by Christ, a beautifully adorned city, the dwelling place of God and man, a restored relationship with God, a place where he wipes away every tear, where death is no more, where no one mourns or battles pain, and the former life with all of its imperfections is gone. It's gone. And from the throne, Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. He says, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. That is the gospel. People misunderstand. Salvation is not free. Salvation is not free. It's infinitely expensive and Jesus paid for it all. So come to him and drink your soul full without paying a penny, without doing a thing. Just drink, just trust, just love and delight in Christ for all that he has done. You see, but we're not finished. Jesus is, Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus is coming, and Jesus saves. But how can Jesus be yours? I know that this Christmas, if things go well, I will receive gifts. I'm excited about that but they're not mine until I receive them. Then I can enjoy them. Until then, they're not mine. How do you receive Christ? Well, you can't miss next week. You gotta come back. But I can't leave you totally hanging. We receive Christ and all of his benefits by grace through faith. By grace through faith, that's it. If you humble yourself, if you turn from your sin in hatred of it, 
and receive Jesus Christ as Lord, Savior, and treasure, believing Him, trusting Him, valuing Him, delighting in Him, treasuring Him, and surrendering all to Him, you will be saved and enjoy Christ forever. Remember that that's what you were made for, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. That, my friends, is paradise restored. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a glorious message the cross of Jesus Christ is. What an amazing truth that we have heard this morning from your word that Jesus Christ is alive. He conquered the grave. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. Nothing rivals Jesus Christ. He is God. He is your son. He is the eternal creator. He is the Messiah that Isaiah outlined and the rest of the Old Testament outlined. God, he is our power. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our paradise. Jesus is the gospel. And I pray, God, that this message lands very, very hard on this congregation. That for those who don't know Christ, this would be a terrifying message that Jesus Christ is coming back and that he is still alive. And for those who trust in Christ this morning, that they would have a smile on their face, that they would have joy in their heart knowing my king has saved me completely from the ravages of sin and from the wrath of God and from eternal hell. And I don't have to be downcast. I don't have to be depressed because I have a sovereign king and he is so sweet to me. I just pray that you make Jesus sweet to Jerusalem church, that we together could treasure him above all things. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Thank you that the end of the story is not sin, but it's the cross, and that by trusting in him, we may be free, free to be joyful again. Paradise is restored in him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.